Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of all right, hello, and welcome back to B-Side. We haven't done one of these in a while, and I'm really excited. Today we're going to be talking about short films. We just completed our episode on short films on the flagship show, and I'd like to kind of follow up with some details with some thoughts I was having about those films, things that I don't think necessarily got filled in in the flagship what I'm going to talk about today is the, the sort of similarity I see between short story and short film, and the, the origins of short story and how I think that, that influences uh, short film. So short stories really don't, as an independent form, independent from other literary forms, let's say like the novel, they don't come into being until the, I think it's the 1840s with Nathaniel Hawthorne's Twice Told Tales. I'm so sure somebody can go check my date there. But it is around that time when Hawthorne publishes his Twice Told Tales, and a little later on we see Edgar Allan Poe and his, his various short stories. And of course Poe famously reviewed Twice Told Tales, giving both kind of positive and negative evaluations of it. And these... These two writers, Hawthorne and Poe, are kind of seen as the originators of the short story as in an independent form. Um, however, long before this, we see something like the short story arising in narratives central to oral tradition. So these are traditions in which tales and stories are passed on by word of mouth. And there's, you know, usually a, a speaker of some sort who's performing the story for a group. And these stories tend to be very traditional in the sense that you are passing the same story down from um, parent to child and on and on through history. Most of literature is actually oral. Most of what we think of as great works are lost. They're, they're from the word of mouth and they've been lost. Um, a few of them, though, get captured in religious texts, which, although very long, tend to be segmented, much in the way we believe the oral tradition was segmented. So you think of something like the, the Indian epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And these are stories, more so the Mahabharata than the Ramayana, um, come off as a collection of stories that um, that are, are tied together through an overarching plot, which is that these two groups of people are kind of at war with each other. Um, we also see this in something like Homer, where uh, Odysseus's adventures coming home and then, um, you know, uh, his adventures that he's recalling and then the adventures that are in the present tense of the poem in which he's coming home are also, you know, very, very segmented, right? He does, he sees the Cyclops, um, he moves on to kind of the 
the uh, lotus flower incident, etc. They're, they're like, he, he lands in a place, something happens, he moves on, he lands in a place, something happens. We see this also very distinctly in Arabian Nights, where the organizing principle is Shahrazad is making up a new story, and the context, uh, the, the content, rather, of Arabian Nights is those stories. Now, personally, I think that reasons for this might be traced to the capacity of memory. These stories were spoken, and though, um, you know, these are incredibly, I mean, the Mahabharata is incredibly long. Uh, the Arabian Nights are, you know, decently long. It's a book-length thing. Um, yet these tales could be memorized and spoken, often by large groups. And I think that probably the reason why we have this sort of segmenting strategy is that it makes it easier to recall these tales if you are able to kind of break them up into digestible units. And there seems to be some evidence that, that indicate as much. And of course, there's also rules about how you, you tell these things. Um, we see this with Buddhist and Indian tradition, where supposedly the, um, the descriptions of something, I think, ran from the shortest to the longest word in terms of adjectives that would describe something. So there are these rules also that accommodate story structure, but I imagine these, these kind of longer tales do benefit from, um, do benefit from the kind of segmenting, right? And so, you know, so you have a, a tale kind of accommodating memory and then being, being passed on. Now, when novels first started appearing in the late 16th century, they too had the characteristic of being a collection of, of disparate narratives drawn together by an organizing principle. And even before the 16th century, we could see this. And you could think of um, like the Decameron of uh, 1353, Boccaccio's The Decameron, in which we have a collection of stories being told by uh, a group of people who have... Um, left the city-state, I think it's Florence, in order to avoid the Black Plague, and they've gone off away from the city, and now they're telling these stories. And so the Decameron is really a short story collection with a plague-based organizational principle. And the Canterbury Tales, published in, in, in circa, or written circa 1400, is also a short story collection that also has an organizing principle. A group of pilgrims are going to see a shrine to um, St. Thomas a la Becket. And initially, when we get into the, the 18th century, where we start to see um, novels, as novels become more sophisticated, they move from kind of random events to something which we might call the, the picaresque. And the picaresque genre is sort of where we follow one hero and he or she goes around from place to place and has an adventure. Again, we could see the the, the short story-ness of this genre, right? It may be the same hero, but he kind of wanders around England, as, as Tom Jones does, and has a collection of events. Now, uh, happened to him. Now, the, these events in, in Henry Fielding's novel, Tom Jones, 
they end up sort of working together, right? And and you end up having like events that happen at the beginning are recalled later in the story. And there's a nice bow that wraps everything up that harkens back to earlier parts in the plot. So by the time we get to Tom Jones, things are getting more sophisticated in, in longer form storytelling. However, it, it seems to still be evolving out of this kind of short, digestible narrative. Um, we get later into the 18th century, you get people like Jane Austen, and the novel as a long-form narrative uh, really takes on its own characteristic, right? It, it, it takes on, uh, it, it's a new thing. I mean, it's, it's novel, right? The word literally means, um, you know, kind of something new and unique. And you can see like the works of Jane Austen are very different from the works that came before. And the works of Francis Burney, another example, very different. There's sort of a, a continuous story that, uh, that has a character who goes through a series of changes, who reaches a climax. Um, there's a peripatia, a, a, a shift in their fortunes. Um, then things wrap up and conclude, but it's the still single arch that um, that this character goes through, that they develop, and it it's all connected together. It feels more unified, all right? So now moving into to short films. So short films were films when films were initially developed. And if you look at the early films of Edison... Um, so, you know, if you go into the Museum of the Moving Picture in Astoria, Queens, you could see a lot of the, the short films of Edison, and they're, they're great. You know, there's these little things. There's Eugene Sondal, the, the um, bodybuilder posing. There's a, a boxing match that you could see part of. There is, I think he stages a Shakespeare play, but I don't remember which one. But they're, they're short. They're little moments. They're, they're tricks. Uh, you think of the Lumiere brothers who had the famous train riding at the audience, which I think we've talked about before on on the podcast. Um, or uh, Georges Millier, who is, his films are also kind of these short special effect spectacles. But in all cases, these things are spectacles, right? They're one reelers, which means it's about 12 minutes, I would say, in, in silent film. Um, and they're usually uh, tricks, right? So Millier uh, developed uh, special effects, and a lot of his films were... Um, they, they had stories. It's not that they didn't have stories, but they were more or less concerned with the observation of, of an effect. Um, even with things that are more narrative-based. So I, I saw a collection of silent Shakespeare. So it was, I think, like Shakespeare films made before 1912. And they're, you know, they're uh, like a few scenes in Shakespeare. I think the only thing that survived of the version of King John was King John sitting on a throne. So so it's, it's not, um, it's not a, a medium that is yet particularly good for something like Shakespeare, which has a, or drama generally, right? Because um, technology required films to be short and filmmakers at this time were usually more inventors than artists. Though I know these, these things shouldn't always be separated into two separate categories, but you know, for now we'll, we'll do that. Um, inventors 
thought Nolan would want to watch a movie more than an hour in length, never mind two or three hours. Uh, like the short story of the oral tradition, the short film of the early days of cinema developed because of the limits of technology. You know, and so uh, you couldn't just continuously film. You'd have to change the reels, and um, people were concerned that this would try human patience, right? They'll, they'll go to the theater for a long time, but nobody's going to want to sit through a, a silent collection of pictures for, for quite that long. Okay. Of course, the movies we're watching today, the, the movies we watched in the podcast, Time Code, Electric, Electric Labyrinth, and Street of Crocodiles, these films aren't restrained by technology. They're all made after 1960. Um, you know, Time Code is made in 2017, uh, they are restrained by their budgets, and, and I'll get into that a little more, but they don't have the same restraints that shaped short films at the in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, but just as Hawthorne and Poe, I, I would argue, borrowed from an older tradition to shape a new genre, the short story, so too do our, these three filmmakers and these three films borrow from their their forebears to revive an older older form or maybe i should say they employ an older form in a new way and so so what do i mean by that well in order to kind of unpack what i mean by employing an older form in a new way i want to again jump into short fiction and my example here is um oh henry's the gift of the magi now the gift of the magi is a you know the most probably the most famous of the O. Henry stories, and O. Henry is known as a, a short story writer for people who don't know him. But this is a, a very quick story about a man and a, a woman married, and the man's wife has this beautiful hair, and he wants to give her a comb so she can comb her her beautiful hair, and he has this prized pocket watch, and he sells that he pawns it. To, to get money to buy a comb. His wife, who you know, loves her husband, very devoted, cuts her hair off and sells it in order to get money to buy a chain for the pocket watch. And so when it comes to exchanging presents, you see here that, um, that he gives her a comb for hair that isn't there anymore, and she gives him a, a chain for a pocket watch, which isn't there. Um, and what we get from that story is a sort of singular irony, right? captured purely in the character's actions, um, and it highlights just that one irony, this idea of kind of um, making a sacrifice for your significant other. Uh, and O. Henry maybe offers additional commentary on that irony, and he does, and he compares it to the gift of the Magi in the in the story of the birth of Christ. Um, but what we're concerned here with is the single action and the, the single relatively simple irony. Yeah. Um, Poe, in his review of Twice Told Tales that I mentioned before, he accused Hawthorne of over-reliance on allegory. So short fiction in, in these cases, here in the case of the Magi, uh, Gift of the Magi, and in Poe's observations about Hawthorne, we see that short fiction is known for presenting um, either a single 
often expressed as universal irony, or uh, it presents an allegory, a sort of a thing we have to, to learn and take away. I would say, though not allegorical, short films do much of the same thing as short fiction, although, um, you know, we, we tend to rely more on irony than allegory. I think allegory is something that really just doesn't survive particularly well in, in the modern world. Um, so the, the short films, they centralize a single action or category of action. They can retain a sort of abridged three-act structure, certainly, but they don't have to. They can have rich characters, but they don't have to. Plot, or rather plot as a single action or irony, takes over the short film, or maybe we should say it inspires it. These are not stories of heroes called on journeys. These are stories of a step, a trip, a mistake, a dance, a sprint, a sight. We could say the short film modulates even between photograph, that's the action at absolute stasis, and film, the incredible, the entire duration of an action. Because the short film, unlike the photograph, cannot freeze time. But the short film also isn't a history. Um, you know, and that's not due to the length of time a short film covers. I mean, you think of Oedipus Rex, it's a play that takes place in one day, but that, that drama is a history. It's about the destruction and revival and destruction again of Thebes, the rise and fall of a great man, the history of a family, the history of a psyche, um, the history of fate, etc. The short film because of its length, um, not because of the time it covers, but because of the actual, the shortness of it, uh, you know, it, it isn't a history then, right? It's a, it's a Nickelodeon. It's a dime watch, a single memory. Right? And these three films, again, they were um, in, in order of release, Electric Labyrinth, the, the short film, and um, University of Southern California, film project of George Lucas, the Street of Crocodiles, uh, the, the film directed by the Quay Brothers, and then the 2017 Oscar live action short nomination, Time Code. And each one of them kind of feels like a, like a Nickelodeon in its own right. Uh, it, it, they isolate a single aspect of film. They bring forward a single and simple irony that is very, um, that can be, I should say can be, can be very O. Henry-like. I think the most O. Henry-like is the, la the la last film, Time Code. Um, Time Code is about a parking garage and the security guards who work there, and there's Luna and Diego, and I believe Diego works the, the overnight shift and Luna the day shift, and they kind of trade off over and over again. And um, what Luna discovers about Diego is that he loves to, when walking the, the, the floors of the parking garage, dance. And so what she does is she leaves a note for him telling him what camera and at what time, and then she dances in front of the camera. And then he does the same thing. And they, they have this relationship that develops through post-it notes and video recording of them dancing. And even though they never 
Well, they exchange some words. They say hello and goodbye when they, they trade ships, but they never reference the, the actual dancing. And so it ends with them um, dancing together. And that's the, the sort of almost meet-cute aspect of, of time code. Um, move on to Electric Labyrinth. Uh, Electric Labyrinth is a climax. It's a guy um, who is escaping this, what appears to be an underground somewhat maybe authoritarian it's unclear the authoritarian government uh street of crocodiles from the quay brothers is the image of a nightmare it's a setting it's a place and in it we see the dusty the dilapidated the inanimate objects of this world suddenly filled up with a vitality and coming to life um of these three films that we covered for, for today's podcast, for the podcast on the flagship, I would say that Street is somewhat different, as it isn't concerned with these, these kind of ironies or, uh, or character, really. Um, Street seems to be more concerned with setting. I mean, the movie is about the spirit and disease of a place, um, and the film's setting is animated, alive, unsettled, hissing. It's a place that has uh, that, that's populated by these kind of puppets, and these puppets are in various dilapidated states. There seems to be a sort of thin puppet shaped like an old man who wanders around. There's a little boy who captures a pet screw. And then there's a collection of these four puppets without the tops of their heads with glowing eyes. And um, it's intensely creepy, but it, it's this feeling of location, of a, a kind of a broken down location. Um, and yeah, so I think for that that reason, it's it feels a little different. It feels like the isolation of setting more from action, because even the major action of Street of Crocodiles is hard to identify. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you even now what it is, other than at one point the puppets sort of pull the head off of the, the older man, and then they, they rearrange his body, but it, it doesn't build anything. It just sort of the movie fades away. But what we see with the with, with the other films is the the kind of isolation of a moment. And with, with Electric Labyrinth, you see the isolation of the climax, right? It's the guy about to escape, about to break free. And the entire movie, all 15 minutes of it, is him sort of running down hallways and there's sound that's hard to hard to pick out. Um, it's hard to understand what people are saying. It's very fuzzy. Little words come through here and there. Um, but really what it's about is about a man about to break free, right? About to break free from the society. And the credits, we see him running into the sunset. So he, he's gotten out of the labyrinth. Uh, but I, I think time code, more than anything, really captures this kind of, this feel of the oral tradition um, that... That, can, that is inherited from the short story, right? And I think that with, with time code, we really see the kind of, um, th this little irony of how two people meet, right? And it, it's a contemporary idea, the meet cute, which is a term in, 
people use in romantic comedy for how the the main pair gets together, right? Um, and and in in the case of time code, what we see with the meet cute is that that convention is presented in a new way. And I don't think there's any particular commentary on that convention. I don't think we could say that um, it's condemning the meat cute. I think rather time code is celebrating the meat cute, if anything. But I think that that one action is given an ironic spin. And that's what makes this story, this, this one action, this segment, which is, is kind of uh, fun and, and different, yet hearkening to something familiar, I think it makes time code feel almost like it's, it's echoing something from an older oral tradition, um, just because it, it is short, it, it's segmented, and it exaggerates and reflects our own culture and the the you know uh, something in our culture in this case you know kind of the the romantic meeting of people um you know a, a couple a man and woman meeting and i think that's why i say time code really feels like it is resting on the top of this kind of short film tradition that that links back to to oral tradition or anyway that's my argument well i see um Street of Crocodiles doing something really different, which is it's a celebration of setting. And even celebration is the wrong word. It's an examination of setting. Because I'm not entirely sure how celebratory the quays are about this place. All right. Very good. Um, so thank you for tuning in. And this has been B-Side.